Hello, and we are back with The Gods Will Not Save You, The Wire Revisited. I'm Willie Romano Pugh. Hello, everyone, and Willie. Great to be back to record this episode of the hit HBO show that we're going to take a... uh, a journey through to, to offer our deep reads. <laughs> That's right. And if you enjoy our deep reads, uh, please feel free to donate at anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to break the record for how fast I get that uh, web address out there. It kills me to do it every single time. And I just want to rip that bandaid off. Let's get into uh, talking about uh, the this uh episode here uh where today we are talking about season three episode 11 middle ground and i know middle ground that's a phrase that gets tossed around a lot these days and uh people trying to find compromises about something but something that i cannot find middle ground with anybody on is that this is the best TV episode, and anybody who doesn't agree with that sentiment, I don't have anything to say to them, really. So, wow. okay, I wasn't, I, I mean, no middle ground on that. I know you turned the AC off, but it's getting uh, hot with all these takes <laughs> that you're offering up. No, I, I mean, but for, you took it up a notch where you're like, this is you know, ever any shows, and I'm, people are like, you know, this is when it really you know, for, for the wire, but you're saying like in the context of just like, wow. Yeah. Like, like all time, basically. I mean, it's pretty impressive. I don't mean to get too hyperbolic with all this. And in the end, like rankings don't even really matter or anything like that. Like this episode was, this was one of only two episodes that was nominated for a screenwriting Emmy and it didn't win. So it just goes to show you like, you know, even back then, they they didn't even realize what they were missing out on by not giving the show its just just deserves. Yeah, um, but, yeah the show got like no 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 love from yeah. the from the awards people. Yeah. And Simon's like, you know, this is just a show in Baltimore that no one watches, right? And it's just <laughs> I'm like ha 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 jokes on them, and then. Like Andre Royo and people are like, this is my this is my livelihood, man. Like we need, I need, I need (laughs) something. Work, yeah. (laughs) But you know, I mean, we'll talk about. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's crazy stuff. But that's how I am about like this podcast. In some ways, like, oh, it's my little joke. Like it's just like a little secret. And then you're like, Jakob, like just retweet the episode that I posted (laughs) on your social. I'm like, I mean, it's like it's gonna be like one day in ten years. You're like, but man. Three more monthly donors would be cool. <laughs> I'm like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> hey, Willie, did you see this street corner like <laughs> screenshot I sent you? I think that's it. And you're like, God damn it! Just invite a friend on Facebook to like our page. No. Anyways, what's <laughs> so great? Uh, great, greatest show, greatest <laughs> episode of one of the greatest shows, or. Like, regardless of where you rank, you know, the show, which I think, you know, it's up there for you, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this episode yeah. transcends all the other shows that could be the greatest. But, you know, this intro is another standoff, uh, Western yeah. style, you know, 
confrontation. So you want to give yeah. us some background on that? I mean, we got Pelicanos uh, on record saying he was uh, really inspired by old Sergio Leone movies. Oh, yeah. And uh, they referenced in the uh, commentary, like, Oh, even though, like, with the train, like, getting into our shot at one point, like, it being a total accident, this is kind of like our once upon a time in the West uh, moment here. And I got to say, like, uh, you know, like I said, really great episode, great intro. But this whole, like, standoff between uh, Omar and Brother Muzon is a little bit, like, jarring, no? Like, apart from, like, the rest of the style of the show, where it's, like... Yeah. I mean, they're just, like, standing in the middle of an alley, like, showing their guns off and, like, kind of, like, having a conversation about, like, the different kinds of uh, guns that they're toting and, like, what the effects will be of it when said gun is shot at the other person so it's very like stylistic uh power play between these like two mythical figures and it's not necessarily like some of the down and dirty like rough and tumble stuff we we're usually accustomed to in the show when like you know long monologues and speeches at each other is like that's kind of like cast to the wind <laughs> yeah i but, mean yeah, are, are you done? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, personally, yeah. The first time, or even you know, even seeing it now, it's kind of yeah. It, it definitely diverges from some of the. You know, I'm kind of wading into deep waters here, trying to do like a film style <laughs> breakdown. But you know, Omar's kind of this guy where you, to me at least, he's such a, you know. Nah, I mean, we've talked about how he's not as mythical as maybe he seems, but, you know, it's kind of like this kind of guerrilla tactics mm-hmm. type guy where he'll pop out on Stinkum. And so just having these two guys like in a random alley right? and there's like this fog like yeah. coming through the shot. I'm like, is this like a fog machine? Like what's going on here? <laughs> and then the train, you told me it's actually on act is kind of just happens to answer. It's yeah. not, it's not planned. I don't, well, I, they probably, I mean, I don't, I can't get in the mind of like the sound department on this, but I think the shot of the train is, was kind of just like happenstance, but then maybe like in post they decided to like amp up the dramatics of it and added in more sound of the train, but it makes sense because, well, I guess it could go either way because, um, in the hunt episode in season one, right. They, I remember reading in all the pieces matter that, filming on those like CSX beds or CX yeah CSX beds the the area that I went on this silly rant about it's on the opposite block of Landville <laughs> looking back now maybe I'm completely wrong and just an idiot but they said it was a nightmare to try to get a shot there because of the trains like or things kept moving around so maybe where they filmed it it was just really like they're like we you know we got a schedule we can't just wait until there's no train because that's never gonna happen yeah <laughs> or you never know but i always thought like oh the train is this you know symbol of something but no one yeah and, and i've heard people ask simon about it even or maybe yeah I don't know, there's too much on my mind as far as like commentary even though i didn't watch this episode's commentary so just disclaimer willie's uh. gonna fill us in on all that <laughs> but it's like, is there some other meaning behind the train, you know? Yeah. But, they, like, David Simon has always been kind of like a... 
evasive if, yeah that's exactly the word i was looking for there thanks for the assist um but he's always been like oh well you're gonna have to figure it yeah. out for yourself what the the trains symbolize uh, i don't know maybe one day we could uh get be more train guy on here and he could uh yeah <laughs> be more train guy yeah are you doing okay or did i just uh like, like mute your tweets and not remember Anyways, reach out. <laughs> I haven't seen his stuff. Uh, anyways, you know, maybe, I don't know, who knows. But, yeah, you know, also, a lot, like you said, a lot of gun talk. So Yeah. I mean, what, <laughs> I mean, you got to hand it to uh, everybody with uh, kind of like staying on theme here because this is like the exact moment that uh omar and brother muzon do find like a middle ground there you go <laughs> where they like i mean they have like a awkward relationship for sure because omar shot him in the stomach and almost killed him but then saved his life so i can imagine there's like some tension there but like maybe some reluctant trust you know is allowed to seep in there slowly but like they're like so like uh desensitized to like all the violence that they've encountered all throughout their life that their their defense mechanism is like very unconventional it's uh like uh let's point guns at each other and <laughs> determine that way if like we could uh collaborate on a little project together of uh you know rat fucking the guy who rat fucked us <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah i mean they're it's like their guns are like a normal person's smartphone or something. That's how they communicate, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so I guess, you know, I always wonder what happens after the intro, you know, cuts out. Do the, yeah. I mean, they both put their guns down more or less or brother did it first. Mm -hmm. But does he, you know, it's like, okay, you shot me. I beat up your ex-boyfriend at this point or mm -hmm. just yeah. your partner that yeah. you moved on from to go at this alone dante so we're kind of even and then what do they walk up to each other they just like meet me somewhere <laughs> i know there's a rim shop no. <laughs> no omar doesn't go there but uh i don't know what do you think like they just kind of i mean i assume that uh because avon was the one to hire brother muzon initially in season two right to yeah so I, I mean, I'm assuming that just like uh, they eventually arrive at a conversation topic about how Brother Muzon knows Avon's whereabouts and that'll prove advantageous to the both of them that they can like kind of go in there and manipulate the tension between the two of them. Yeah. yeah, but like I don't know, I don't know if they stopped by uh, Vincent's uh, spinner shop or yeah. those vinners, man. That's the truth. So, what, you want to get some major crimes, yeah. uh, phone shenanigans stuff going? Get that? I mean, we got some really intense stuff to talk about, but exactly, you know, this is all part of the all the pieces matter, I guess. Still, but we're just slowly like sweeping their stuff under the rug. Like, all right, <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, let's talk about stringer and ah, fried chicken. <laughs> this is like full. This is full of the fixes. Yeah, it really yeah. is. This is like Pelicanos. It's just like, yeah. 
I mean, because <laughs> there isn't much food in the. Is there like? There's yeah. not much food, but like we get the like the metaphorical food, I guess. Yeah, we get the like meat, the addictive, yeah, the meat and potatoes. But uh, yeah, so the MCU or the detail or whatever they are, they're uh, making really great strides and uh, making great headway on uh, closing in on this uh, case of Stringer Bell, or so it seems mm. like. They're getting really giddy and excited about it. And just the general mood in the office is one of like, you know, we're on the brink of uh, something major here. Everybody's smiling, cracking jokes. They're looking at the computers, uh, examining a lot of uh, like charts and graphs. And I can assume like all that stuff is promising information because, uh, you know, it's uh they're 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 uh they're also figuring out that they have more uh, tools at their disposal to <laughs> get on yeah. these uh get on these cell phone calls so really great stuff from the director uh Joe Chappelle uh making uh a bunch of uh plainclothes cops like giddily looking at a bunch of computer monitors uh, you know exciting content on tv <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> we're kind of right there with them like uh uh uncovering different pieces of the puzzle and, and and getting giddy about uh what could potentially happen yeah so they realize that like you said there's more technology that's uh available for what they need as far as like pointing these sonar things at mm-hmm. stringers compartmentalized like separate phone and da, da, da. and mcnulty has to go down to the wherever they keep like the storage right and uh i mean well we're gonna talk about some some pretty funny layers here but is this kind of like a foreshadowing about the whole education you know system and right. its shortcomings where we're going to see Prez in need of new books realize that, you know, all the materials that that's he needs are actually, you know, yeah. right, right, right on the other side of a door. Yeah. But then on, I guess you could, I mean, whatever you want to that's say about true, that. Yeah. And I got like, a, it's like a two part question. And is this like some subtle, uh, you know, although at the time, like break breakthrough type technology stuff, like, you know, the propaganda aspect, like, look at us police, man. We're always like. We're just like this underfunded schools, you know, like we, we always got because like police always, you know, get less or equal to education. Like the cuts never come out of, uh, you know, their department. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Wink, wink. I mean, it's probably just like a big uh, sweeping statement on institutional dysfunction that no matter what you know part of the system you're crushed under there is always going to be like a cell phone triangulators or new computers just out of reach (laughs) you should have access to but everybody's like too disorganized to realize that you know it's right within their grasp yeah Uh but what do you think about the second part of my do I, I didn't like speak it clearly enough. Propaganda, like, like they're you know it's like man like we see it a lot and what you know in the context of the show it's like you know they're up against it so to speak yeah. but you know are they like the whole like oh man look at us like we got it just as bad as like these school systems that have been like destroyed for 
decades and mm, i mean and like you know of course like we're always getting cut too although we're going to talk about kurt schmoke who wasn't uh too popular with the police apparently yeah but i, I mean i mean it's a common thing that we keep coming back to about like uh david simon towing the line and whether or not he's as progressive as like yeah we always uh assume that he is but i don't know i, I think it's like pretty clear about like coming at this from an outside perspective that just like you know these institutions are underfunded are misallocating or misusing their resources uh you know in many different uh instances and it's just kind of like fucked up internal politics and stuff like that like i don't know if it's necessarily like taking the cops aside in this instance uh yeah or it's depiction yeah depiction not endorsement yeah exactly i'm sweating so now that i made you sweat a little bit <laughs> let's get to the fun stuff uh the cameo oh yeah respected novelist uh dennis lahane spending a good time like a good amount of time reading one page of irish lasses <laughs> yeah i know i mean thanks to your notes i I f- like I, di- I didn't know the name of what he was reading. I didn't That's maybe what... examine it close that closely. I'm like, who's watching me watch this? What's, what's she gonna say? No, but uh, no, I know. I mean, and you you had a little comment about the one page. You know, what's, what are you? Uh, no, it's shots just shots fired. It's just that he's like a. Like they were casting against type, like you assume like a, you know, a writer who's as acclaimed as he is probably gets a lot of reading and writing done, but he looks like he's contemplating that one page Mm -hmm. like pretty thoroughly. So it's a little bit against type there. (laughs) So good performance there in a, in a, like from an unexpected source. Um, so that's what we got going on down in the basement there with a uh, mystic river writer, Dennis Lehane looking at porn. Uh, <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> the, the down in the toy store as yeah. Jimmy would call it. So, uh, once the, once Jimmy gets his hands on, uh, that, uh, cell interceptor or whatever it is. And Lester is pointing it at, um, Stringer's place of business. We got uh, Daniels uh, settling an old score with Fitzhugh to try and uh, do like the whole, you know, you owe me one scenario because Fitzhugh totally dropped the ball on the port case last season. And now, uh, I mean, even if uh, Cedric Daniels doesn't know it, he uh, more or less convinces Fitzhugh to give Stringer Bell the name of Ahmed to make this seem like more of a terrorist-related thing so that they could actually have a chance of uh, bringing him down. Yeah, I guess, like, more commentary on the war on terror, as your note stated. But, uh-huh. I mean, we... Yeah. yeah. So... What do you think? Is that like a ethical violation? Oh, for, uh, yeah, for sure. For <laughs> making up the name like Ahmed? It's for sure. It's for sure bad. <laughs> Jimmy's really happy about it. <laughs> yeah. Is Jimmy canceled because of this now? I mean, let's face it. A lot of things about this show is yeah. canceled. <laughs> I I, I'm canceled for not realizing how much of you know how problematic a lot of these things in the show are. Uh, but no, but it's know. not like it's not... 
I don't know. It's different. It's it's really depicting uh, like a lot of the moods from this time and like uh, what people in law enforcement probably were thinking. I I'm assuming. I don't know. I I'm I mean I think you're giving what law enforcement were thinking back then like a lot of credit. <laughs> Well, in terms of like, they're gonna go more after like, uh, oh, okay, yeah, like in a xenophobic fashion. Oh, gonna, I, I was like, a Zemanad, I thought his name was Ahmed. <laughs> they're trying to, they're being like, really just like, what? Oh, Middle Eastern name must be terrorist. Let's, this is like the yeah. most important thing, yeah. So, well, I mean, this is basically Jimmy's point where he's like, no one cares about. You know, the black people essentially getting murdered in the ghetto street wars. So, like, you know, he's like, yeah, someone did something about it. But, yeah, Jimmy didn't even know that Homeland Security gave them, like, all that equipment. Yeah. So. Um, But, I mean, you know, considering what Jimmy's going to do in just a couple seasons or season five, this is like, eh. Yeah. I mean, it's indicative of like the path he's going to go down for he's sure. Like, oh, that's how you do it. Yeah. I mean, is it, you know, it's like basically they are piggybacking on a war that was essentially based on a lie. So, yeah. like, you know, the bigger the lie, right? Yeah. Can we just talk about one thing that I wanted to ask you about? It just starts from the beginning where they're like, like Jimmy and Lester are talking he's like I can't <laughs> I'm so happy I didn't even know Fitzy lied about uh, Stringer's <laughs> name and that that's gonna make me happier in a few like hours or whatever the timeline is but can you believe we can you believe we sold a tap phone <laughs> and he's like they're all patting themselves on the back but it's like what about Bub- I mean Bubs is the one who did yeah. the like they would be nowhere without him Bubs should be in that room room celebrating yeah. with them as Just, the phone yeah. calls start coming in and they should be getting him whatever he wants there yeah they but, should they should be giving him subsidized housing or something yeah why don't they just give him a housing voucher <laughs> jesus willie they're up on this phone and right. there's a lot of activity and pretty much like you had talked about you know this like jovial atmosphere celebration and they like think that they've you know they got him because on the line he's he's talking to shamrock and says like uh you know like they're talking about the two hitters so yeah um like how would they prove like two hitters i mean they know what that means like but yeah like like what is the intent that they how can they discern that and why are they so happy about just like oh we got him yeah we and then they click case closed <laughs> yeah like a minute long of just laughter and partying yeah. there's uh, like over i think there's like overlapping dialogue at this point of the no that's like in a scene before where like yeah mcnulty's calling Portman. oh get daniels on the line like they're oh, the, reaching a fever pitch kind of but in yeah in this instance i feel like they i think you're 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 right about that you're dead on that they might be getting like prematurely excited about that being uh, like concrete proof that Stringer is ordering a hit on somebody because as we see with um, when McNulty and Perlman are getting the affidavit uh, certified or oh, what, yeah. whatever it is with Judge Phelan, like even ju- the Judge Phelan can't even remember like who Stringer Bell is for, like when they had extensive conversations about it in the first season. So it's like, yeah, maybe they're uh, 
putting the or what is it is it putting the cart before the horse or like they're i don't know man they're getting excited they're just getting way too prematurely excited about uh this brief exchange in our opinion in our yeah comment comment you know comment on our uh twitter feed if you disagree with us Mm mm-hmm Alright, so Rawls is uh you know doing his thing yeah. in the like the meeting of the higher ups right. and just wants to, to go away and you know, just kinda sweep it under the rug. Is that accurate? Yeah, pretty much like acting exactly how you'd expect a cantankerous old fart like this to act in a situation <laughs> where he he's realizing that everything is a lie and he's just like well fuck that like we can just get rid of it so it never happened i don't speak your fucked up lingo let's just go in there and move the junkies out yeah just yeah. like drop them off in the Woods for all I care. Yeah, I, I did. Like George Pelicanos did mention, like everybody, like wanted, like was always vying to write for Rawls because they just like loved uh, getting him worked up so much and having him like go on these expletive filled rants at other people. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Uh, da, da, da. So yeah, they're wondering why Royce isn't calling him mm. or calling uh-huh. Burrell, calling the cops and the meeting you know with his uh, orders right right but there's like he's involved in a whole other conversation at city hall exactly what do we make of this i mean this is uh where we get the famed cameo from former baltimore mayor kurt schmoke kind of turning the tape oh, man this is like getting into that conversation we were having last week of like levels upon levels to the point where like we're doubting reality or if we're just living in a big Simon simulation. <laughs> simulation. <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, so like Mayor Clarence Royce uh, in this moment where he's like having a meeting with like, uh, you know, head honchos in different departments, he's like actually considering whether or not keeping this Hamsterdam free zone is, uh, you know, a good good thing and could do good for the city and he throws it out there like maybe we could find some middle ground on this <laughs> but he's got people pushing him in all different directions uh you want to talk a little bit yeah about kurt Schmoke and maybe give some context on uh why his appearance in this scene is so pivotal yeah i mean he was a mayor of baltimore he was the first elected black mayor we i mean you already pointed that out because beforehand there was uh william donald schaefer during the 70s up until like 86 until clarence du burns <laughs> clarence royce i mean we talked about him too just kind of rehashing this he he essentially he wasn't elected necessarily right he yeah. just kind of I think assumed because he, uh, he was city council president, right? So yeah, he, he was a yeah, he was like a long time kind of ally of William Donald Schaefer, and he was involved in politics in Baltimore. Right, uh, came out of the East Side for forever, and then he ran against Mayor Kurt Schmoke, or a former state's attorney, and then you know ran for mayor Kurt Schmoke. I just wanted to point out one thing before we get into more about Kurt Schmoke is 
in the first episode of this season, right? Uh, Burrell and Carcetti have their intro meeting at that famous diner. And then he tells this long story to Burrell about, you know, and then the like first district, uh, me, like Dominic DiPietro. And he went and told Jimmy Carter, clean my alleys and this and that. And I kind of told some background about the real life councilman named Dominic M- Mimi DiPietro from the first district. But <laughs> I, I, I also learned some new things about, uh, about, you know, or learned some new comments he made about, uh, the race between Kurt Schmoke and, um, Clarence Burns in like that for that 1987 position mayor. He was like basically talking about how, you know, since Clarence, uh, do Burns came up on the East side, basically like funneling the black vote to the white, um, (laughs) like, you know, people running for office uh, that was essentially his job he's like you know the hard like working class and he got rewarded with the job passing out like towels at a recreation center you know Jesus. worked there for decades until he got into more politics so he was like you know Mimi DiPietro was like he knows white people so like you know go on vote for him and Kurt Schmoke he's he's from uh, you know up there in Jewtown with the rich Jews in Mount Washington like, oh, no. <laughs> what did I say about this guy like oh he was just a like hard working southeast Baltimore like well, yeah. yeah maybe you could have seen him at a uh, IBS hall <laughs> you know getting getting drunk talking talking kind of crazy anti-semitic but <laughs> yeah but he just it was basically you know he i guess yeah it is because he's this you know associating elite with you know wealthy jewish people and yeah. kurt schmuck is the elite like candidate that he you know is set his target on yeah yeah because kurt schmuck getting back to him he is like extremely he was a he was an extremely brilliant guy you know still is i think he's the university of baltimore president right now yeah that's in his bio um so he basically graduated from oldest high schools in the city in the country and it's one of the best in the city baltimore city college which is a high school so you know he's like on the track for success when he goes to a high school that's called a college (laughs) like (laughs) and uh then he was a road scholar while he was at Yale and that's like what, like eight like at the time it was like 80 people in the world or something that's Get, pretty like under 90 people yeah that's impressive and then he, you know, he went to Oxford and then he went to Harvard Law so he's like yeah it's like super highly educated Ivy Leaguer and then you know state's attorney then he becomes the mayor of Baltimore from 87 to 1999 and then I think in 1988 he states you know like oh we should think about decriminalizing yeah and I sent you that little short. I, it was like, that wasn't a nightline. Basically, the man who called him the most dangerous man in America was a really powerful, longtime uh, representative from Harlem, Charles Rangel, or Rangel, Rangel, yeah. I think. Yeah. And he's in that little short. So that's uh, that's kind of was his most outspoken critic. Or, right. Um, also, I mean... I thought it was really great watching, again, it was like a 10 minute clip from the late eighties and it was narrated by a British, was that British? Yeah. Yeah. But there's an ABC nightline or there's a nightline where Schmoke and Wrangle go, go at it apparently head to head. And that's what I was really hoping to find. But at least we got 
you know, it was more of a diverse. There's like maybe four or five talking heads. There's like right. a DU agent. Yeah. Um, there was the narrator. There were some other politicians. There was another academic. Yeah. And from what I like, from what I was learning is that reading a little more about smoke is that he kind of got his, like one of the models he was going after was in Liverpool around that time. Uh, they were doing the whole like uh site you know injection site or you know a dose site so that way that people who were addicts could you know obtain whatever they needed and you know still go about their days like so that was his whole idea is like well they're gonna do drugs so at least they if they can get it they can still maybe work or be productive or be a parent in some capacity and not be on the streets just committing petty crimes and then maybe like lower the dosage and utilize you know treatment options yeah which like could make sense which is what that like academic guy was kind of talking about so maybe it makes sense it's like a british program because he's like yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, of course, a lot of it was probably his own. He's a brilliant guy, but yeah, who knows what he learned? Well, you know, he was in a, he was at Oxford, right? So, yeah. But uh, some of the best and brightest he he uh, he encountered. Yeah. So I mean, I know we talked about. I got some notes also on Wrangell. Oh yeah. Because he's like a really interesting guy. Just to give context on why he was calling Kurt Smoke the like you'll be the most dangerous man just. It was, I thought it was interesting to learn more about where he was coming from because yeah. on the surface you could think like, oh, this is just like a, whatever, Fox News talking point <laughs> or whatever. But this guy, he's, so he was like also African-American from, you know, Harlem. He grew up pretty like modest or even like borderline poverty. It seems he dropped out of high school really early. Oh, he dropped out of high school in high school yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like really early like he skipped many grades and he was like it was really early for him to even be dropping out of height no i don't know what i'm talking about um but yeah so after he dropped out he joined the army and became like a decorated kind of war hero in korea and then he uh-huh. went on the gi bill to college to become a lawyer after working odd jobs and stuff so yeah, he's like almost like yeah, the American dream, right? But yeah. in the fifties and yeah, so he just pretty much saw like, you know, he thought in his community and what he, what he observed was that like, drugs are the number one, you know, enemy. So although he was, you know, eventually to meet with people like Nixon, who's, you know, obviously the architect of what the war on drugs, yeah, the war on drugs it's just, I think it's more complex than, you know, right. just like some white guy politician just stating, you know, this is how I'm going to, you know, attack this. Whereas Charles Rangel, Rangel's like, you know, it's a lot of yeah. his own experience. And then, but it also, in my opinion, is problematic because he's saying like, no, Nixon, we need more agents. We need yeah. more money. We need more resources sent to fight the global war on drugs. And he's, yeah, he was like on the uh, House Select Committee on Narcotics Control and Abuse and kind of like push for this debate like on the house floor about the decriminalization with Kurt Smoke who was really only supported by a few people like Pete Stark from Cali and a guy from Maryland named Steny Hoyer and then he's the current majority leader yeah yeah 
Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, another person who supported, like, just to have the discussion was Marion Barry, who, like, this is late 80s. So literally a couple of years later, he was, you know, the, probably the biggest story in politics when he was busted for crack possession. It was like oh, shit. smoking, smoking crack. So, yeah, he was like <laughs> known as the crackhead mayor from D.C. Wow. But so that probably didn't age the best like when he was letting his like yeah let's talk about it oh wait so yeah. i'm sure wrangle like he got got after him but yeah so Set you know up. that's just a little background on charles wrangle who then also in 2010 he pretty much got he got convicted i think on ethics violations for like more like real estate stuff but yeah, some he, real stringer bell shit. <laughs> yeah, it just was like, oh, you own a villa in the DR and you're not paying taxes on any of the profits like from renting it out or you're why are you receiving rent controlled apartments in New York when the average like cost of those is eight thousand a month, but you're paying like well below half that. Yeah. And you've been in Congress for forty years. So basically he just was like a Congress lifer. So he became yeah. very powerful and you know, welded that uh, power to do what he thought was right, but you know, not a good look. Who knows what? Yeah, who knows what he was getting? You know, for his, I don't know. I don't want to get into conspiracies. I already <laughs> proved, but I mean, it had to be very profitable to be the biggest out, like counter, you know, con- member of Congress yeah. to, to <laughs> what Kirk Schmoke was talking about. So. Right. But it's amazing to me also that this was like pretty much the first couple of years of his mayoral term, right? Um, I mean, this was, you know, obviously he got reelected, I think, twice, right? Yeah. Because he lasted for 12 years. So this didn't automatically, like, you know, I Up guess. Upend his whole yeah. camp, uh, viability as a, yeah. as a mayor. I don't think he was well regarded in like the law and order. Like, that's what. Clarence is talking about right like yeah. you know we're gonna arrest everyone else elsewhere so how can they not call me law and order right. but smoke was known for I don't think the police really were too favorable because he cut jobs and in the yeah. police department and you know this kind of talks and then tried to do the whole education thing and then look who ended up winning in 99 so yeah unfortunately we see that like people from the law and order perspective are upset that he is kind of dragging his feet on this whole issue and Burrell in his very like narrow-minded way of thinking thinks this is all about like Mayor Clarence Royce trying to screw him over and make it seem like it's uh, the police department's fault that they haven't like cleaned up on this mess already. So yeah, yeah Burrell gives him a call to try and to try and uh, you know force his hand to do what he thinks is right here. Yeah, so like help me out a little bit with this because they meet again at that same diner we can presume. Him and Carcetti. Yeah. Yeah. And he's. Like, he has no idea, right, that he's going to be making a push for mayor. Right, Because right. he's like, hey, you know, your guy share, Tony. Yeah, just, share this information with Tony Gray. And Carcetti's like, eh. Yeah. He's so, really kind of metaphorically foaming at the mouth here, for sure. And that's that's what happened, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Because I yeah. thought I was way off. No, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true. Like, because, you know... 
Burrell and Carcetti have been in like a awkward relationship for a while where Carcetti k- keeps kind of using him to like make these different pushes and it's all like serving him in his own advantage to his own advantage and Burrell like thinks that uh he says like you owe me one basically right so he's like do yeah. this for me kind of drag Colvin's name out in the street for me and uh Carcetti brings this information back to D'Agostino because he realizes this is like a potential bombshell thing that could uh, propel him to a new level. Yeah. For sure. So what do you think about Terry and, you know, her plan for Carcetti to actually go hear out Colvin's side of things? Is this surprising or is this like, Um, I I don't know, maybe... Well, see, I mean, I th- I think she's just uh, more cautious than anything is that she wants to uh, examine like the political optics of this situation. And she's like, doesn't want to, you know, hop, like get too far out there before she makes like a accurate assessment of everything. Like um, she's like, yeah, well, maybe we can see like if. Colvin is like what he's doing is like really popular with a lot of people and like allying with him could get you more votes. And it's like, she also, uh, contacts Jimmy again, like, yeah, kind of like kind of making it seem like that, that she wants to have sex with him, but it's like all part of like her more devious plan to just get more internal information about what's going on with, uh, uh, the little Amsterdam experience. So I don't know. I, 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 I really think she's just kind of like trying to cover all her bases in this instance for the sake of the campaign. She wants to get a full fledged view of all the different angles. So, yeah, I mean, I don't yeah, know. that's who she is really, I guess. But, uh, what do you think about Carcetti visiting Colvin again and their, their journey through, uh, through Colvin's world and, all, all those things, you know, they've kind of inner, like, I mean, we talked about early, early right. on in this season, there's an instance where Carcetti did, you know, go to a West side, West side, quote, <laughs> quote, uh, community meeting right. and kind of just looked on, you know, at Colvin and this kind of like an odd gaze that right. maybe uh, <laughs> kind of was like hinting at certain collaboration that hasn't really ever transpired. So right. what is that? I mean, like what? what yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's, a little. <laughs> it's pretty stunning that Carcetti, like he's one of like the only other people that have been to these two meetings. So he sees kind of like the night and day response of people within the community to this whole situation that's going on. So he must register in his mind that a lot of what Bunny is doing to, uh, you know, drive the statistics down has a positive effect. It's good and it's working, but whether or not that could serve him advantageously to like embrace this, uh, effort is kind of like up for debate at this point, because down the line, it, it, they kind of, you know, make it seem like that Bunny felt betrayed by Carcetti, right? I, I honestly, Uh-oh. I can't recall. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but makes sense. I mean, we kind of get a glimpse into, you know, where 
Holden's at with right. Tarketti after the community meeting, and he's seeing the good now, but he gives him kind of this antidote. So right. uh, basically tell him in a way like, hey, I don't know, you know, who you are and what you what your motives are here. But old man Stryker. Yeah. I always knew he was a racist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he always knew that, but it's more so like that was just who he was, right? He's not trying to imply Carcetti's like that, right? He's. I think he's just like, I don't, like, no, you're just a you? politician. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're slimy. Uh, so what, I mean... The story he tells, I mean, I know I'm missing a lot of the obvious here, and it's like a read-between-the-lines type thing, but is he basically, it's like a pretty bad racist joke because he wanted to do them all at the same time, meaning, like, what, is this like a mass grave joke? or Anyway, <clears throat> anyway you slice it, uh, I think we could all <laughs> agree with Carcetti's assessment of the anecdote. Yeah. That's sick. Yeah, <laughs> so I've I completely might be one of the few things we both agree with Carcetti on, just like <laughs> through and through. <laughs> yeah. That hold me strike your sick. I mean, I have no no idea what this story might be grounded in, or if it's like has any shred of truth to it, because you know this could just be. And look at the writer; it's Pelicanos, right? Yeah, he's not a native. Like I feel like. You know, his references kind of were like bigger picture in some ways where you could definitely tell when Simon or like Ed Burns is involved where it's like extremely, uh, you know, like detailed references to the wire world in Baltimore because I couldn't find one thing about like the striker building. Is it a funeral parlor? Uh What it, what is, what exactly it was? Because first of all, Willie, this is not... This is not West Side at all. So they just had a community meeting and, you know, apparently everybody, or maybe it is a West Side community meeting. They like invited everyone to the church on Gorsuch and Kirk in Northeast Baltimore. Um, and like, hey, our regular church on the West Side. So I'm going to have everyone like, we need you all to drive across town or we'll provide a bus or whatever. And then we'll have our meeting in this, like it was Homestead Methodist. So. A little pertinent detail here. I know we're both reading We Own the City. So this is Mm -hmm. the area that the cop who, and spoilers, like we got to give two disclaimers now on spoilers for Gun Trace (laughs) Task Force stuff and The Wire. So Kostopoulos, K-Stop, the cop who stood up to Wayne and and Herschel or whatever, like you want to call it, like he didn't. He wasn't like a sociopath, so he's like, yay, he comes out <laughs> looking like a great cop, and Lord knows like what else he was doing on the other side of things. But his first, they called it Chum, Coldstream, Homestead, Montebello. Oh. So that's essentially the neighborhood. And yeah, again, couldn't find anything. I just found some old like newspaper clippings advertising what I believe to be the striker building address 1501 Gorsuch Avenue as like split level apartments from like from like the 30s up so if it was that one like maybe maybe this was like some east side version of the funeral home that you know the Barksdales use where 
they they're just using like, it as a front. Yeah, like they had like a family living on one level and then a funeral service and then like other shady stuff happening. Or who knows? I don't know. But all I'm trying to say is the striker building has become my new, like, you know, how Omar wants to find, you know, Stringer, like up until this episode or something. It's like my new, like, fixation. It's your white whale. Yeah, I would. I don't want to give like. A, I feel too copish sometimes. Okay. You know? Like I don't want to give like this is my Jimmy to Stringer. Like I gotta find like a, you know. Yeah. After that, the bad is uh, basically was, Amsterdam. Yeah. The ugly. The ugly. Yeah. Is that it? I've shown you the good. Now let me show you the ugly. Is there anything we want to talk about, like the substance of the meeting before we move on, or like it's kind of. Self-explanatory, the community meeting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we we kind of mentioned how Carcetti was at both meetings, so he yeah, sees yeah. the shift. But like, we see uh, Bunny taking Carcetti to Amsterdam and uh, tells him, you know, he's he's got to make the walk himself. He'll be safe, uh, but you're just gonna see things that you won't like, and. Um, uh, George Pelicanos and Joe Chappelle talked about how it became kind of a conscious decision uh, in the way they filmed this scene because, you know, the audience has been, uh, you know, privileged enough to see how Amsterdam has uh, formed from the, be- you know, how it's evolved from the beginning. So <laughs> we're kind of like entering a Tommy's mindset with watching him like look upon like all the horrors that are taking place before him. Uh, but we only hear the sound of it essentially. And, you know, like w- one great thing about uh, the wire and it achieves is that crazy soundscape that of course was uh helped along by Fran Boyd's expertise in some of the design and stuff. So this is one of those moments that rarely stands out where uh, we're meant to be placed in the shoes of someone who's looking upon Amsterdam for the first time and how like overwhelming that could be. And it works pretty effectively, I gotta say. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for someone who like thinks he's like getting a grasp on like, you know, what the heartbeat of the city is like, it, it seems like he totally has the rug pulled out from under him in this moment. Yeah. He, he's got some ammunition to kind of go against uh, Bunny politically in this moment. Like, I feel like it's kind of unfortunate that uh, he's going to choose his own self-interest in this moment. Tony Gray would be a great mayor. (laughs) Seems like he's a lot less uh, self-absorbed and kind of wish he could have gotten into the mayoral seat and went and fixed up the schools like he said he wanted to. Yep. And we're going to see what that means or what that, you know, not happening essentially means in the next season. But would have made a difference anyways. Right. Who knows? But this is the end of reform, Willie, this this season, right? Um, So kind of uh, where we also get to see Bubs in, you know, his ever-changing hustle and kind of some last last shots of Johnny slamming the dope pretty... Viciously and being warned warned of his pending doom, essentially by yeah. Huck, Huck yeah, yeah, Huckleby. Yeah. I saw on the IMDb. I was like, "It's a Huckleby," <laughs> and then I remember, it's like, "Oh, I got it. Don't worry, Huck." Yeah, listen to Huckleby. 
I mean, it, I mean, this is kind of didn't Bubs say kind of like the exact same thing to him. Like, I'm trying to school you. Like, oh, yeah. make sure you you're okay. But I mean, Johnny seems like he's worse off than ever once he's, you know, kind of a pretty bad side effect of what's going on in Amsterdam is that like people like Johnny don't want to listen to any sources of help. And he, I mean, he's looking worse than ever. He's got like pretty bad, like acne scars on his face. And he, uh, laments the sight of bub selling t-shirt. Like he, he gets like emotionally affected by seeing bub selling t-shirts out in the thoroughfare. Like a lot is going on with them. It's, a uh, only natural that he overdoses and dies in the next episode. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, it only it can only make you wonder, you know, what if he would have heeded Bubbles' advice and maybe he could have been the business partner that now Bubbles seems to have right. under his wing. And I was going to ask you about that. Like, so he's had multiple interns, essentially, because we've already <laughs> seen Sherrod in, you know, earlier in this season, right? Like in the whole uh, cheese uh, war with the with his dog. I don't even remember. Yeah, he's just like member of a crew and someone gets shot right next to him. Oh, wow. Like, you know, when he's like, whoop, and then okay. he shoots a guy. Sherrod's there. Okay. And this is definitely that. not him. So I'm like, yeah. oh, Bubbles, had, I don't recall at all Bubbles having a, another kid under his wing, like a homeless hopper, essentially. Yeah. Who's offering him some pretty good advice. Like, hey, where's the sweatsuits at? <laughs> and you know but I gotta ask you also do you think Johnny even though he's really messed up is just like scowling more so at the irony of them franchise boys hit song white tea playing in the background as Bubbles pushes <laughs> off with his cart full of white teas uh, maybe <laughs> he's like what the hell Am I, I know I'm high but jeez yeah. I mean, it messed me up a little bit, and I'm stone sober. <laughs> Anyways, Willie, um, so we talked about bubbles there. We got Cuddy. Cuddy. Cuddy from the cut is making some... Uh, slow but steady progress uh, in getting his uh, boxing gym for the youth up and running. And um, he comes to Avon with a, what he deems is like a pretty uh, big, pro, you know, proposal for, um, you know, Avon to uh, donate to uh, his little project. Um, he, he wants new equipment and protective gear for his kids. Uh, he sheepishly asks Avon for $10,000 and Avon and Slim kind of like laugh him out of the room, insisting that they'll give him 15000 and it's no big deal. And they don't understand why he's being so sheepish about it. Um, but is this like, is this uh, something that people consider to be problematic that uh, they're, you know, a line there, you know, Cuddy is, is getting a favor from Avon, like a big drug Lord. Like he shouldn't be accepting that kind of blood money from him. <laughs> I think that, <laughs> or is it just like making, I mean, Avon, he's a, he's a stone cold blooded killer, but he's doing a nice thing here. I don't know. 
And boxing is close to him. He's, you know, I mean, in some ways it's his downfall. And I mean, they were going to figure out his identity in the first season or else we wouldn't have one. But like his love of boxing and his talent, even though he had physical defects as Slim Charles calls it a cranium shot, which I'm not. Yeah. I'm like, okay, he just got like bashed in the top of the head and it. Like that's the thing in boxing. I'm not. I'm not really a boxing guy. No, but, I don't know. Um, but you know, it's close to him, so he wants, yeah, the kids to be able to maybe have some of the chances that he had. Maybe uh, you know, someone helped him out along the way. I don't want to generalize, but I'm just like in the economy of you know their world. Like I mean, it's stated over and over by. Anyone who writes about Baltimore, you know, the creators of this show that, like, unfortunately, drugs and drug sales are the only viable, you know, yeah, parts of the economy for a lot of the people, the majority of young people involved. So, I mean, one way or another, the drug money's going to touch whatever part yeah. of society you're existing in. And, you know, I've like, I think it was even commonplace or not commonplace, but you know, if you have churches that are being funded by drug money or filtered and siphoned in there, I mean, having like a hole in the wall boxing gym startup like that's Yeah. Yeah. But do you think Avon can like contemplate that he's going to be fleshing out Cuddy with cash and like, you know, substantially helping him out with this business. But do you think he's worried at all that in Cuddy getting this money and getting all this gear and making his gym a more like viable opportunity for kids that Cuddy is like cutting into his potent like Avon's future workforce of like kids who could like come work for him in the organization. Like Cuddy's gonna be stealing them away, like kind of like a conflict of interest there. Like we all know what happens to Avon eventually, but like if he stuck around, do you think there would be like some potential uh you know uh uncomfortableness between cuddy and avon over like some uh kids that show potential both in the ring and in the open air drug markets <laughs> yeah i mean you're bringing new meaning to the nickname cuddy you know <laughs> he's cuddy and and so <laughs> avon's like his profit margins and yeah i mean that's completely plausible but i just think that um, like in the context of like that whole thing, I mean, like they do say in those situations and you're providing some really great background on like athletics and, you know, underprivileged communities and how they are really malnourished and, yeah. and this and that, <laughs> I mean, it's true, but I mean, they do say like sports or is one of the other ways out, right. To, right. to wealth. So, I mean, I think this is like pretty commonplace because like we've talked about Cuddy's based on a real figure who did help, you know, young people boxing, you know, and I think his, the gym that that guy Calvin Ford was associated with was called Upton, which is the opponent in the sparring match or the impromptu match who's beaten on Justin. Yeah. I know said Upton on the shirt, but I mean, I'm just saying that like, I think they identify like, okay, we got two or three special fighters that right. could make a living boxing, right. you know? And then the rest, it's like, just come if you are interested. And like, it's like, if you're, if you're just sick of the corner or whatever, like, maybe 
this is like a better option but then there's always like you could always go back you know exactly like i think that and like avon as a drug lord maybe is thinking i want to be entertained too right like yeah. in the future i'm I want to see like a return on my investment and be able to spend my money at some big time fights and then be able to say like, Hey, that's exactly. my guys, you know, like maybe I lost, a, like it's worth losing a few, really? you know, talented like guys are good with their hands to be able to be like proud of something in that, like the bigger picture I'd imagine. Yeah. But as we all, as anybody who watches the show knows the only way Avon will be watching those matches if it is if he gets he somehow gets a pay-per-view connection in jail and he's only watching that uh boxing match on TV from behind bars. Yeah. I mean it's yeah, I think he could definitely. Okay. I think that given like Webay's whatever N64 PlayStation setups <laughs> and his like, you know, eating outside food and yeah. this and that. I, I think he's going to be watching uh, <laughs> whoever he wants. Yeah. But I want to ask you before we move on, I get too far into, cause you know, I'm not a boxing guy 15 minutes later. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Uh, so what would be more terrifying? You know, like still the prospect of, speaking in front of a gym full of like uh you know kids roasting you because remember everyone willie's like his greatest fear and we don't know i'm trying to get to the bottom of them like bros is there a group of kids in the neighborhood that's currently bullying you because you've been talking about needing counseling you know like, you know you could talk to me right uh we could we could figure this out so that whole thing with the roasting which we're seeing taking place in this episode like did you get your equipment and whatever the talent like it was like a flintstones joke or yeah. bedrock and or you know like okay big crowd of eighth graders or you know getting made fun of or being in the ring with upton kid yeah uh, that's sparring that's definitely got to be more humiliating for sure for justin that he's like twice this kid's size and he's just getting annihilated in the ring hard sparring i'm not I'm not here for it. You're not into it? No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of body shots, but man, Justin, I think the actor's name is Justin. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, they said his last name on IMDb, but man, he's, he's tough. Cause those that like hard body shots and right. face shots and, and it's like pretty, uh, pretty, um, how do I want to say this? It's pretty indicative of the wire style that they're celebrating Justin just staying in the ring and like lasting until the end of the sparring rounds instead of like actually like getting a leg up on the competition and like him like beating back this Upton kid. But yeah, like Cuddy <laughs> and saying like, oh, you've got a lot to learn, but at least you stayed in there. Like it's just like little baby steps for everybody like on their way to reforms. <laughs> yeah. It's true, man. Like, there's no way that Justin, like, all of a sudden, like, trumps Upton's, you know, extensive training. And, like, for some miraculous reason, he's able to prevail. It's like, no, I got the shit beat out of me. But at least, you know, I took it on the that good yeah. chin of mine.
yeah, this is the episode where Stringer finds out that he's been had by Clay Davis. Yeah, so he meets with his attorney, yeah, Levy. Levy's just kind of laughing in <laughs> Stringer's face. Yeah. And Stringer's rage is only mounting at this moment. Is I mean, Levy's obviously, we see him, he's very cavalier and yeah. almost like, you know, toes the line of casual racism right in front of like D'Angelo back in the day. But why didn't Stringer just go to him? Was it because he was like really paranoid about something like this happening if he went to other people, even though it's happened anyways, like you didn't want any word to get out to anyone or Clay is just that manipulative. I think that is part of it. Maybe also it's just like, uh, we see Stringer go on this journey of like trying to become more of like a legitimate businessman. And maybe he like compartmentalized Levy into like this thing where it's like, okay, this is going to be like my criminal lawyer. But then mm. once I get, you know, B and B up and going, I'll have like a regular <laughs> lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> they can yeah. consult two different wing. Like, you know, maybe he was like working on phasing Levy out. But then, like, when he sees these newspaper stories popping up and he gets jealous, he's like, all right, I got to pull out all stops. I don't... But string, we, we see Stringer make some catastrophically bad decisions throughout this this series, for sure. But leading up to the his demise, uh, yeah, I think he goes to visit Avon at, the, uh, at his war room and mm-hmm. he's already, like, highly upset and there's... New security, new doorman, right. can't get in. It's yeah. wartime. Too many fucking new faces around here, if you ask me. Is there that, you go. Yeah. That's what you get for playing those away games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyways, what's up with the giant A, though, on the building that Avon is I didn't even know. Hiding out in. There's like a circled A. It's like, this is top secret. All right, uh, A. <laughs> and then inside the I building. Didn't even notice. You know, as Stringer's headed in to, you know, deliver his you know, message to Avon, Akon is playing in the background. And what? is it is there any symbolism here that it's the song hit song locked up? Uh maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, they pretty much are having almost like a they're having like continuation almost of uh, like the confrontation that yeah kind of brought all this to the surface when they're like existential crisis yeah. debate of yeah. gangster businessman. So any thoughts on that? Like uh, Avon being too harsh? No. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of like it's a. Uh, I mean, The Wire is great at uh, creating these situations where people get into arguments where everybody's wrong (laughs) about things. So, like, Avon is kind of, like, taking advantage of a lot of the blind spots that uh, Stringer has exhibited and kind of, like, needling him and poking at his insecurities about wanting to be legitimate. So, like, it's a conversation that's rooted in a lot of their, their personal context, so... Yeah. And I mean, in this moment also, it's important to point out that Stringer is pretty much demanding that Slim Charles assassinate Clay Davis. Yeah. (laughs) Which Avon kind of like in, I mean, is this a role reversal or he's like, no, no violence in this moment. Or is this just like complete, you know, it's like the irony of String always talking about don't bring attention to ourselves. (laughs) And then now 
he's you know getting personal because he's obviously humiliated and yeah he's like no i'm gonna take it to the most extreme level <laughs> he wants to do some quote-unquote day of the jackal shit <laughs> yeah so we're also the details are already figured out his whole phone thing but he's giving us insight into how cautious and paranoid he is right where he's changing sim cards and yeah this is after their big like blow up again right so is he I asked him my notes because I'm a casual at this moment. Like he, he's already called Colvin once, right? Yeah. But then in the last episode, he's so enraged at this moment. He's like, ah, I gotta call back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So that's crazy. Yeah. yeah so they, uh, Stringer's meeting at the cemetery of all places to, yeah. us, to like <laughs> tell on Avon more. I mean, yeah. I don't want to like, oh, he's about to be killed, snitch, snitch. Like, but I mean, basically, but. Yeah, uh, we're gonna see they both do it. So, what about this scene? Like, sh- strikes you? Or I mean, fog? What's yeah. up with that? I mean, I, I think it's pretty self-explanatory from what happens. Like, they've been operating out of a funeral home like these past two seasons. It's only natural in their industry that deals so much with you know death already that he's gonna. Uh, make a decision that will lead to the death of his friendship uh, with Avon and do that while in a creepy cemetery. Yeah. So really like we've seen the range of emotions of, you know, his anger and now like the look before he hands the note of the, uh, Avon's location. It's like that, that stuck with me a lot. Like, yeah. That moment kind of looking at Colvin, like knowing what he's about to do. And at this point, Avon knows that he had his nephew killed. Like it's not surprising that either of them are going to not really take any restraint in getting the other in a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> They've exactly. already shown their true colors. Yeah. So trying to make sense of the game string is, and it's like, Trying to tell himself basically that it's all business when he knows it's it's more than that. Is that safe to presume, or you really think he's just like? <laughs> well, I think he's like trying to justify to himself yeah. in that moment that it's business, but it stems from a lot of like personal insecurity. Yeah, in him because like Avon in the last scene, he's even like he's discouraging String from like you know being more violent. So maybe it's like. Just being like, well, I'm going to show him in a way. I mean, he's still my brother and I love him, but he said something mean to me. So I hope he goes to jail. Yeah. Little (laughs) does he know. Yeah. Avon is taking it up a level and he's like, you know, (laughs) while strings worrying about how much jail time Avon might get. uh, Yeah. Avon's like sending two of the most fearsome killers. Yeah. At string. (laughs) Like he. Yeah. Maybe he's not saying it to himself, but he know like he has to know that uh, Muzon and Omar are not just going to meet up with Stringer to give him a good rest, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> that's a euphemism that's popped up in these last two seasons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Avon knows what he's doing, but, um, you know like what are you gonna do when you find out your best friend had your nephew murdered it's a tough situation yeah exactly that's yeah. uh 
That's crazy. Um, but let's talk about this trip to the barber shop okay. first. Uh, <laughs> not Avon, there yet. Avon's getting a fresh shave. Yeah, in- there. But I'm like more logistic, so we we can assume that Omar's with brother at this moment, and mm-hmm. they're traveling in tandem, or have they just agreed to go their separate ways until brother like gets all the intel and calls Omar to where they're gonna do the deed? Because like, if they if Omar is lurking outside, how would they like? Does he have that much discipline where he he would take it upon himself to not just barge in and try to like kill Avon right there? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I feel like brother Muzon since he already has kind of like a pre-existing relationship with Avon, maybe he like talked Omar down a little bit and convinced him that he's going to handle this part of the situation. Yeah. He's like, you know, Omar lets him know who these, like the third party that got him in the situation that, you know, as far as getting shot by Omar is. So it's like, okay, well, we're going to get one of them. So, right. And like, do you think Omar hates Stringer more at this moment than, than Avon or is like equally? I mean, he has to because Stringer went the extra step of the last season of sending him on a wild goose chase, hoping that he would get killed. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Perfect. Makes perfect sense. But (laughs) To the shave, to the barber. Okay. Talking about that. I need to go to the barber, but... Yeah. Uh, David Simon. He talks about all the connections to Baltimore, and we all know that's, like, my favorite part about, you know, aside from hanging out with Willie here. Uh, you know, it's like uh, we were joking about, is this just becoming a true crime uh, podcast? I'm like, no, I'm one of those people. But, hey, you know, it's all related. So, anyways... He mentions like, oh, yeah, you know, and then we got Andre Hart and, you know, cutting Avon's hair. Andre, everyone knows who Jim Hart is because that's his nickname. But anyways, Andre Jim Hart was aligned with like gangsters like Bodie Barksdale. And he was implicated in the murder of John Bailey back in 1982, the real life stick of man who we've learned there's even another layer too from the West Side Story article about Donnie Andrews, where you remember that part? I was blown away. I was like, wait, what? I knew that John Bailey got killed for robbing, you know, well, he got killed because those guys are sociopaths and crazy, <laughs> but he robbed, you know, uh, Lewis Cookie Savage, stole his watch or got taken, kind of like what we're going to see where, you know, Omar robs Marlo. But it was like a crazy group effort with Donnie Shorty Boyd and John Bailey all carrying out that robbery. So I didn't know they were involved, but that's a whole different story. And then, you know, he was implicated in John Bailey's killing and then other drug conspiracy stuff. But then in doing more Googling, which I guess I should have stopped, but (laughs) I'm glad like I was going to talk about like, Oh, look at me, Willie, like made this connection. Remember what Simon said? John Bailey, Andre Jim Hart. Apparently, in 1997, there was a guy named Andre Maurice Hart who was convicted of first-degree rape. Yeah. And and comparing the photograph from this, like, registered sex offender site, which I don't know anything about, and that's something I, like, scout out these websites, but his name just came up associated with, like, oh, this is in your area. And the, the... mugshot photo from that registry site and the guy who's cutting Avon's hair they 
looked very similar. Remarkably I, similar. I believe yeah. it's the same person just based on like the identifiers, hairline, glasses, facial hair, yeah, ears, like like it. It's him, <laughs> but it doesn't say Andre Jim Hart on the database. That's like what he's registered under as a sex offender. That's the only detail, but I mean, it's like too many things line up. So I just, I was like, huh, what do we make of this? Uh, we've heard about criminals like being maligned as far as their casting by people like Jay Landsman, where he's not happy with Dennis Wise's name being used because he was a murderer. And, you know, Bodie Barksdale showed up in the rehab center, but yeah. wanted a bigger part and was like going terrifying yeah. the wardrobe people. Yeah. And Lanzen's like, these guys are no good. But Donnie Andrews is a cool guy in my book. Um, I don't know what Jay Lanzen, what, like what his thoughts on uh, Norris Davis are, but he's just more like a shadier, less talented prop Joe in some ways. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, nothing said about Andre Hart's casting. If this like conviction wasn't thrown out and I'm just like, yeah, you know, basing this on one side I saw that, I mean, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm assuming it's true. So like this is 1997, this episode shot in 2004. So they had to know that like on, on top yeah. of, and to hear, to hear, him, David Simon, in the commentary, like, yeah, everyone knows who he is. He's just big time. And I was thinking, like, oh, he must be, like, a Robin Hood type. And I'm, like, convicted of rape. Yeah. So that's not a whole a good, different... Uh, not a good look, unfortunately. Yeah, so... Awkward. We'll see where this falls in post-production, will you? <laughs> but I'll take any of the... Uh, <laughs> any of the heat, because I, you know... I sprung, I sprung this detail, so. That's no, okay. I, uh, you know, I'm, the more we know, I guess. Listen, we're going to bring everything, we're, the uh, uh, chips ball where they may, like, we, we're covering all our base, like, we got, we got it going on, basically. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to find this level of analysis or, you know, research on the other, other podcasts, but I, they might know it and just decide not to talk about it because that's a completely normal decision to make to not talk about really bad crimes that certain cast members might have or were convicted of yeah. allegedly. So yeah, I'll do some more research, but sure. Not on the Wi-Fi at my work. No. <laughs> uh, oh, you don't want to look up a uh, sex offender databases on your, your works Wi-Fi. Uh, no, for obvious reasons. <laughs> <I'm just> you, <laughs> uh, uh yeah, anyways, uh, that was a weird finding. Yeah. But, yeah, let's keep going. I mean, they uh, have one last... Oh, let's get to the toast, yeah. Yeah, Stringer and Avon are having, uh, you know, what they both individually know will be their last toast together because they've both betrayed each other uh, by snitching them out, but they don't know that the other one has snitch themselves out and it's like kind of sad because we see like Stringer smiling and laughing uh, in this moment where they're talking about when he uh, was shoplifting a badminton racket mm. from like one of the stores a set a whole set oh yeah badminton set um, 
And it's like really unfortunate that he's smiling and laughing at this point because they both have a lot of uh, secrets that they're not telling each other about how they're fucking each other over, basically. And it's like the scene is uh, layered with so much like uncomfortable subtext of them, like kind of trying to like scope each other out and like where they're going to be and like at what time. And like you had mentioned, like is Stringer suspect of Avon and like why he's like asking about like his whereabouts. Um, it's like, like it, it could go like either way because the acting is so brilliant here and like the way it's filmed and everything, um, like Idris Elba could be communicating like, Oh shit. Like he's asking me about this because like, uh, he's suspect of me that I like, uh, you know, snitched on him or it could be the other way around. Like, why is he asking about like where I'm going to be? Like, does he know, like, is he sending someone after me? So yeah, there's, there's so much to dissect in like this one little scene and it's been like built up for like the past three years uh, that like their friendship is like so strong and durable, but they're never like quite on the same page. And even when they appear to be on the same page uh, and they're like smiling and laughing and drinking with each other and hugging each other and saying to us that, uh, yeah, they're both secretly plotting the other's demise, unfortunately. Be wary if we ever end up on like (laughs) the final season of this project, like, Doing a to us toast, <laughs> <laughs> or if we're ever like you know staring out of our waterfront yeah. property drinking, uh, what is it? Is it Jack Daniels they're drinking? Or? Yeah, what? <laughs> Jack Dan- Johnny Walker, Johnny man. Walker, Black Label. <laughs> okay, yeah. If we're ever, I mean, we might be drinking Jack Daniels or <laughs> no, uh, uh, Tito's, no. <laughs> Let's talk about Omar and brother showing up at the uh, the the development site where yeah. Stringer is about to get murked. Uh, yeah. So the main importance of discussing their entrance and the logistics of their assault on the building and like plan yeah. to kill Stringer is if there's only a front entrance or that's the way they deem they need to to get in the building how the hell does brother pop up out of like a stairwell right from the attic like is there like just like a huge lobby that omar like walked through and brother muzon was able to just like sneak by and like get up to the very top of the building uh without sweating <laughs> yeah. or anything because he looks so calm and collected like uh it's so crazy like we spent so much of the last episode talking about like oh is this all a simulation there's like layers upon layers like what's going on but it's here it's like wait how what like he got to the top of the building like how did he get there <laughs> like yeah. it's just like there's so much uh thought and like you know layers put into like the construction of this show's reality but it's it's just like this one like geographical logistical flaw like not being able to explain how brother muzon got to the top which just like 
it just dilutes this the power of the scene just a little bit for me yeah like because once like i watched this episode twice to be honest and like only two times (laughs) when you know once i i saw uh, once i realized like oh that's a implausibility or a flaw that uh muzon was at the top there it's like hard for me to unsee it but there's still, of course, a lot about this scene to be celebrated. It's pretty brilliantly constructed. Yeah. So first I want to talk about, I know we talked about some names like, uh, of, you know, muscle or other characters in the co-op, like, uh, what's the name? Show Brown or show, uh, uh-huh. Phil boy. But anyways, Stringer, the actor who plays Stringer's bodyguard, the one who looks to the side and is like dressed similarly. And then, you know, gets blown away by Omar. Uh-huh. His name is raw Leba. Raw Leba. L E I B A. I swear. Wow. Cause I was like Stringer's bodyguard. Who the hell is that? And then I saw his face finally. And this dude is like raw Leba. <laughs> Um, but I don't know anything. <laughs> Anyways, but Stringer's like, I know I'm heartened with bizarre details like about this whole thing. But what is up with the way he addresses Crawcheck, where he's just like unleashing on him, like Clay's not here, so little man, like is this because he has PTSD? Because little man always been weak, as yeah. he told Weebay. <laughs> like he just hates. Like he's like, you remind me of that weak dude, and goddamn it, Clay, little man. Yeah, that was pretty great the way he kind of (laughs) laid into him like that. I thought it was great. I mean, he's not a little man at all, for sure. He's a rather portly fellow, so is that like the whole nickname irony uh, thing that's uh, reoccurring? It doesn't last long, though, because if Krawcheck was freaked out by Stringer's delivery there and had like an inkling of like, this is not just a normal Mm -hmm. day, Stringer's about to snap. You know, Omar <laughs> comes in and yeah. kills somebody with a shotgun. Yeah, Raw Leba, the bodyguard. Yeah. He is like right. uh, blown away, and Krawcheck is just. I he mean, cowers before the side of Omar. Yeah. He cries and hides behind his little blueprint, like rolled up yeah. blueprints. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, this is, a, is this the scene that leads to the line by Holly? Like, or is that another one? Like, th- where he's like. Big, like, big stick, big gun, big man, big gun or something. There's I, there's something about it in the next episode, but like, I can't remember. Project's like, it's like a big black guy with a big gun or something. And then Holly's <laughs> like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, some unfortunate uh, <laughs> casual racism there. Uh, any, yeah, anyway, but, so, like, string is off, you know. Right. We see, as we talked about, like, the place, like, Brother Mazone's impeccable plan, just, like... To levitate yeah. to the top, I guess. They, I mean, weren't they talking about uh, Slim and, like, the episode where they're doing hits and botched, like, hits and Cuddy's involved and, like, uh, they got to reach out to all these old-time muscle guys and, like, brother or someone did black magic or someone, one of the hitmen or potential muscle prospects said that, like, they mentioned, like, brother or something did black magic on that fan, like, that whole... Oh. Whole group, so maybe this is like it coming to fruition, and I'll double check this, but I swear they and it's like they they input like a name, like it wasn't maybe I don't know if it was Muzon or brother, it wasn't like brother Muzon, but something around my brother Black Magic, right? That so maybe this familiar. is him, like yeah. he's like doesn't need the fire escape, he just yeah, <laughs> or 
something. I don't know. I need I need the architectural layout of this building uh, so I can like come up with some way to rationalize how Brother Muzon gets to the top of the that staircase there because it, it, it's driving me a little crazy. I sent you the screenshot. I tried to check the back alley, but I'll need a desktop or a laptop to do that. Uh, so yeah. it's like at a, what is it? God damn it. The 409 North Howard. Yeah. yeah. North of downtown. I'll, I'll, I'll check it out, but yeah. I don't know, man. It's bizarre but, stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's pretty wild that in this instance of like Stringer, like clinging to his last moments of life, he's like running through, this is his property, right? Like yeah, basically yeah. our, yeah. But it's like I assume he's owned owns it outright or it's all decrepit and like entrances are blocked off and stuff and there's like pigeons shitting everywhere. It's just kind yeah. of like representative of uh Stringer's whole journey on this uh you know his like this is representative of his journey to you know legitimize himself as a real estate developer that things are like in tatters everywhere and it's all dilapidated and underfunded and this is like where he's going to end up getting killed i know it's great little known fact marlo's guy that raises pigeons that he's really like he planted like those pigeons are as another distraction to like fuck with stringer. <laughs> even even the writer and director of this episode said like, oh yeah, there were there were just pigeons there. Like we didn't plan. <laughs> I mean, it's a great like uh, effect that they have the pigeons fly by as Omar's walking up with the shotgun. It is. It's yeah. got that little face off moment in there. Although those were doves. We just got to point out. Oh shit, they were doves. In face off, those were doves. In pit, pit in the movie face off, oh. like the people are like, oh, they must have referenced the movie uh face off in this instance we're like okay first of all it's a total accident those pigeons were just there and in face off it was doves that was that were flying by doves. not pigeons so anybody who makes that fucking half-assed uh connection is just out of their element uh, no <laughs> i've never even seen that movie and i want to second that <laughs> and when i do watch it i gotta watch it now i will not anywhere near making that assumption because I know that you know, <laughs> just like the puns are done no. this whole pigeon dub, the doves are done <laughs> great movie though face off, check it out I will man alright let's get to the end here though where Stringer's like pretty much realizing yeah. his death's imminent like his imminent demise or whatever you want to call it I'm lacking the words to articulate this but I mean what need, what else needs to be said it's phenomenal acting like right. there's obviously a lot of you know symbol like tying it off with his final words and you know just leaning on the money the money and something that Omar is not too pleased with so yeah I mean, and, and you had brought up like the whole thing about like how it was originally written in his script that Omar was going to pee on Stringer's corpse. Um, and there was like pushback from both Michael K. Williams and Idris Elba around that whole issue. Um, and I got to say, like, yeah, like I that might have made for like a really captivating visual but it does it like I, I feel like it doesn't really track with uh omar's character because he even brings up to him like oh yeah avon ratted you out and we didn't have to torture him either so he's kind of like 
trying to separate himself from some of the tactics that uh, the Barksdale crew with uh, torturing uh, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's kind of like showing that like he's a better man in that instance, I think. And peeing on his dead body, like Omar is just like, you know, get in, shoot somebody, get out. Like he's not there for <laughs> Yeah, it's weird on a lot of levels. I mean, when I read that in All the Pieces Matter, I was like, wait, what? Like, I had no, like, it never crosses my mind, like, this would even be, like, something that Omar would take part in. And especially if, like, Brother Muzon is there, who already, I mean, Omar's, like, you know, very secure with who he is, but I think he'd be a little weirded out, too. Like, like Brother already thinks, like, he makes, like, little remarks about my lifestyle and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, inside like there's just so many levels of like, man, right. this is another one of those instances where I'm kinda like, oh man, the the people who made this show who I'm like, you know, like when your idols become rivals. No. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I mean I mean I I completely get where like Idrisel was coming from. He's already upset about being killed off and you know, obviously like it's worked out well for him and Simon was the first to let him know that you're going to get more work than you ever can imagine. You're right. not just going to be in these like obscure shows about Baltimore. <laughs> no one watches and be like a A-list movie star, which he's yeah. like even transcended that. But yeah, he's like, uh, you know, that's kind of weird guys. I don't know. I don't, I'm not into that. And then for them to kind of push back or like someone like Ed Burns who, I mean, you, I don't know if you recall his response, but it's very Ed Burns. Like, like, what do you mean? Like the, for the character, like you don't think that would be, you know, right. Like, you know, you're dead. I mean, like the character's done, you know, yeah. like that had nothing to do with his legacy or something like that. Yeah. So, but I'm like, eh, I mean, I can't imagine though that like, I mean, is this like, I know I always go there, like a racial thing too, where it's like, this is a show for, like it's written by white dudes about black, you know, inner city stories for the most part and characters. It's like people debate, is this a black show? Is it not? And then it's like, all right, uh, you know, white guy, white writer's room, (laughs) writer's room. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. And then like two strong right. black male lead characters are like, no, we're not going to be peeing on yeah. it. Like that's super disrespectful in a but, lot of ways. It's just then, awkward. Yeah. Michael K. Williams also like went on record saying like, you know, I felt really like tormented and awkward about this whole scene to begin with. Like, yeah. am I just like perpetuating the myth of black on black violence, blah, 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 like stuff like that. So a lot of, uh, I don't know. Many different factors went into making this scene as great as it is. And I think everybody played an equally integral part into getting in, getting it, you know, to like what we see today and recognize as like a very pivotal moment in television history where it's a no, no holds barred approach to uh, getting the story told. And the best episode of television Exactly. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Uh, Omar just fl- f- continuing to derail like any of the details efforts. He did it before in season one when he killed uh, Stinkum. And with this, he's uh, preventing uh, McNulty from achieving ultimate satisfaction and catching his target. 
tormenting Bunk and McNulty. It's almost like, <laughs> oh yeah, some, one of those like women that they harass or annoy with their little like pickup line games is like, Chan like the karmic like they're like hey like someone told them we know this like crazy guy named Omar who can thwart all their biggest <laughs> investigations and like. Or maybe it's just with their wives. You never know. Like, forget the women they're picking up and, like, burning their clothes in their house and hooking up with and all this stuff. Like, yeah. the women that they're uh, cheating on or whatever. Right. Okay. Well, just, sorry. That's completely random. No, that's good. Uh, also, I don't, I mean, this is, like, I'm very literal. So, like, it was obviously going to be, like, a dummy that they, like, Omar was going to be yeah. on. Not actually, like, I was like, how, do, yeah, that would be super weird. Like, they got to do, like, a fake pee thing, like, yeah. on each. No wonder he doesn't want to do it. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, dumbass, this is, like, film. <laughs> and also, Simon said it was, like, someone says, like, oh, we thought, like, there was this person who would do that or something. Like, based in the, I've never heard anything like that in the Wire universe, but someone, mm. like, a character in the realm of Omar, like these brutal hitmen would do that, like pee on the people they killed. Wow. But I never, I don't, I don't know anything about that. We'll delve into Weird it. Stuff. All right, Willie, it's. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody, for sticking with us uh, throughout our little journey talking about Middle Ground. Um, if you want to continue interacting with us, we're on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, yeah, check us out. We're always posting good stuff. Willie deserves the bulk of all the credit yeah, for that. Um, and yeah, but hey, you can always send us an email too at thegodswillnotsaveyou at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any of your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns. Um, yeah, reach yeah. out. That's right. And we also, as always, want to give a special thank you to Most Art for doing the music for us intro outro bumpers all good stuff check them out at mostart.com that's yeah great guy great stuff another uh really talented creative mind we've worked with here is andre tesnes who hooked us up with our emblem so i mean without that I don't we'd know be where nowhere we, yeah, yeah. We'd, all right. We'd be uh, on the bottom end of Vine Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sucking on a 40 on 5 Right there. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch up with you next week. <laughs>